All right. Well, if you have a Bible, Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs 2, verses 10 to 22. Uh, If by God's grace we can make it that far, we're going to end the chapter here this morning. We're going to look at the prophets of wisdom, the prophets or value of wisdom. Last time, if you were with us, we looked at uh, the first nine verses of the chapter, which we put underneath the heading of the pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom. In other words, if chapter one has succeeded in showing us the importance of wisdom, chapter two is helping us to learn how to obtain wisdom. How do we become wise? And so the steps to become wise were given, particularly in verses 1 to 4, the reception of wisdom, we called it, and then the reward of wisdom, verses 5 to 9. That's what we looked at last time. Now, this morning, we're really going to build off of that that second point there, the reward of wisdom, because it's really that, that that thought that is continuing. He's just going to elaborate upon it. And we're using the heading of the prophets of wisdom. And so we're going to see from verse 10 to verse 22 that wisdom will, number one, guard us from the evil man. That's verses 10 to 15. Secondly, wisdom will guard us from the strange woman, verses 16 to 19. And then wisdom places us with good men, verses 20 to 22. In other words, this is going to be an elaboration upon some of the ideas that he introduced in chapter 1, the necessity, the importance of wisdom, And recall the first major lecture of the father speaking to his son in chapter 1 was all about uh, the the companions of wisdom. In other words, we we ought to be wise. Wisdom helps us uh, discern who to befriend, who to be with, who to uh, become companions with. And there are those that we must avoid. And he talked about that gang mentality, etc., chapter 1. Well, chapter 2, this section, is going to be similar in, in how it's describing the company we keep, but it's really just, it's kind of coming at it from the opposite angle, and it's describing how we ought to be protected from or guarded from evil men and strange women and ought to be placed with good men, all right? So that's kind of our thought flow. If you got your Bible, let's begin by looking at that first section. Let's begin in verse 10, read down to verse 15, and we'll start with that, all right? So the Bible says this, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 10 says, when wisdom enters into your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion shall preserve you and understanding shall keep you. Okay, that's kind of the introduction. We'll come back to that. But then specifically, keep you from what? Well, again, there's there's two uh, primary things that it's going to describe. But it's going to describe how verse 12, to deliver you from the way or the path the lifestyle of the evil man, from the man that seeks forward thi- or speaks forward things, who leaves the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice to do evil and delight in the forwardness of the wicked, whose ways are crooked and they, uh, and they forward in their paths. Pause there. So verse 16, we'll see the second thing it delivers us from is from the strange woman. But let's begin in verse uh, 10 and following. And notice how I mentioned just as we read through, but verse 10 and 11 is a bit of a, an introduction, if you will, to this section. And it's describing again, it's setting the tone, the, the, what we're labeling the prophets of wisdom. When wisdom enters into your heart, he says, and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, then discretion will preserve you and, keep, and understanding will keep you. The Hebrew word in verse 10 that's translated pleasant 
is used in a variety of contexts, but I think it's instructive to see how it, is, it appears in the book of Song of Solomon. It's actually the word that describes something being attractive. In Song of Solomon 7, verse 7, for instance, it's actually used of being attracted to one's lover. The attraction between Solomon and Shulamite, the two primary characters in the book of Song of Solomon. But that's the same word that is here being used in in Proverbs 2 and verse 10. And the concept is that wisdom becomes attractive to the righteous and they ought desire to acquire it, right? That's the idea. Is that, and again, that's really the whole point, the big point of the book of Proverbs at large, is the father, Solomon, is speaking to his son, Rehoboam, and he's trying to get Rehoboam to see the, the value of wisdom, to become attracted to the right lifestyle for the glory of God. And so he warns of all the, the pitfalls of evil and wickedness, but then he, he praises and promotes what wisdom brings. And the whole idea is he's trying to make wisdom pleasant, attractive, alluring, right? This is, which is one of the reasons I think we talked about a couple weeks ago, but why the, uh, the father will, will use the analogy of lady wisdom versus lady folly. The idea is he's speaking to a young man and he's, he, he's, he knows he's going to be attracted to one of these women, but he's saying, hey, He's trying to praise Lady Wisdom and warn us of Lady Folly. And so that's, that's the whole idea. Is he says it needs to enter your heart and then it'll become pleasant to uh, your soul. In other words, this idea of entering the heart is important. This is a big biblical theme. We see it all over the place. We'll see it elaborated upon a little bit more. Uh, let me just read that real briefly. But in Proverbs 6, verse 21, he'll say the same thing. Verse 20 and 21, he says, My son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not the law of your mother, but rather, he says, bind them continually upon your heart. And he goes on to describe how they ought to be tied around the neck. And most believe, and I think appropriately so, that this is a, another way of alluding to what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, several places that through Deuteronomy. But the idea of having the law of God written on our heart or letting it enter our heart is the idea of not only memorization, right? I think that's, that could be part of it for sure, but it's more than that. It's more than just mere memorization. It also has the idea of capturing your affections, that you learn to love it, that, that it's actually something that you are, again, attracted to, drawn by. And we'll see, this is a, and he'll develop it a little bit here, particularly when we get to chapter five and chapter seven, he's going to speak much of the idea of uh, the young man being allured by the strange woman. And, but what's so fascinating is he uses similar lingo. What often attracts us, right, to evil. He says, we, we need to know, we need to be aware of, we need to ponder, we need to avoid, and then be attracted to wisdom, the right things. And so that's, again, the, the whole idea of lady wisdom versus lady folly. So he's trying to describe how wisdom must win the heart to, to control the mind and shape the affections, as I, as I say here, then it will ultimately bless the life. If the pursuit of wisdom is nothing more than an intellectual exercise, then it will not ultimately shape the life. Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 3 in the New Testament, but he says, we ought to set our affections on things above. Right? And it's interesting because the Greek word there is actually the same word normally translated mind. But many translations will use the word affection or something like that, focus, 
something like that, because they see the, the connection in that passage with it's not merely a mental exercise, but when we give our mind to something, and the, the whole idea is that we focus upon it, so we begin to, to have, be drawn towards it, that our affections begin to attach to that thing that we are focusing upon. And once we love something, right, we, ha- we are affectionate toward it, then it shapes our actions. And that's, that's what he's trying to get the son to see. Yes? I'm just thinking of a current example of what you're talking about. The young man that was arrested for the murders in Idaho, mm-hmm. he was a student of criminology. He was studying the criminal mind for a PhD. He loved the study of criminology mm. in his mind, but obviously he wasn't letting any of the practical stuff go into his heart. That's good. No, that's a good illustration. Right? Did you all catch that? The Idaho killer, right? That uh, He was a studying criminology, right? But then he became <laughs> that very thing he was studying. It was, it was an academic exercise, but he didn't see the, the practical you know, outflow of it. Good. Yes. He wanted to experience, him, experience it himself, right? Which is also another, again, idea. And this is a profound concept, but what we focus upon will often, you know, that's what we'll become. My, my uh, mentor, Chuck Crabtree, has always said, he said for many years that, you know, what you think about when you're free to think about what you will is who you are or who you will soon become. And the reality is it, when we fantasize about something, anything, then it, it, it eventually our affections are drawn to that and we're, we're stirred by that and we start making plans for that. And, and it's true of any walk of life, but ironically, this is why so many people, and they don't make this connection, but why so many people who hate their parents, right? They're bitter toward their parents. They become their parents. You ever thought about that? You're like, why is that so, you know, there's, it's so ironic. It seems to, but the whole point is, they're fostering bitterness in their soul. They're focusing on it. They're focusing so much inner, mental, spiritual, emotional energy towards their hatred that they actually begin to reflect it. And Paul will say in the New Testament how important this principle is when it's describing us and our growth in Christ-likeness, right? Second Corinthians chapter 3. The idea is we behold the glory of God. As we read the scripture in the face of Jesus Christ, we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And when we do that, he says we are transformed from glory to glory, right? We begin to look like Jesus as we behold Jesus. We focus on him and worship him. In other words, as I often say, just rephrasing the principle a different way, you are what you worship. You are what you worship. And in a sense, when you fascinate upon something, you ultimately will become that thing. That makes sense, and so we see this con- continually through the scripture. But this is the, the the essence of what this introduction is getting at, verse ten and eleven, when he says, "When wisdom enters your heart, when you let it inside, and it becomes your affection, and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, you're attracted to the right things, the godly things." Then he says, "Discretion will preserve you, and knowledge or understanding will keep you." You will be guarded by this information. You'll be protected by it. In fact, the word discretion that appears there in verse 11 is the idea, we we talked about this before, right? But it's that, recall, this is that word that means 
the ability to know the best course of action for achieving one's goal. This is the kind of knowledge that enables one to make right choices that will protect him from blunders and their consequences. And the idea is that, again, it's, it's connected to that word that means foresight and the ability to, to see ahead. We're going to develop that much more uh, in chapter 5, where that's one of the key words of that chapter. He says, we must ponder the paths of our feet. And we'll talk about it more when we get there, but the word ponder is literally the word that means to weigh in the scales. And the concept is that we must learn. Wisdom demands that we begin to, to forecast, to see ahead what consequences will result from what choices. And so that's the whole point is if you have wisdom into your heart and it's pleasant to your soul, then the result is you will get discretion. And discretion is going to preserve you. Understanding is going to guard or keep you. Well, guard or keep you from what? Well, he's going to generalize two basic uh, categories. Verses 12 through 15, he's going to talk about how wisdom guards or preserves us from the evil man. The evil man. Now, this, this is what's you know, described in verse 12 to 15. Let's read it again. He says, verse 12, to deliver you from the way of the evil man, from the man that speaks froward things, who leaves uh, the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice to do evil and delight in the frowardness of the wicked, whose ways are crooked and they froward in their paths. Let's look briefly at this description of the evil man that we find here in verses 12 to 15. But first, it describes the evil of a man as found in, in what he says. He speaks perversities. Now, what's interesting is when it describes in verse 12, this man who speaks froward things or perverse things, that word is, is a word that literally means to be upside down. In fact, it's used in 2 Kings chapter 21, of tipping over a bowl. Or it's used in Judges 7 and Hosea 7 to describe flipping over bread cakes, right? And the idea is maybe, you know, if you're a cook at all and, you know, you make you bake bread or maybe you fry an egg or whatever, the idea of flipping it over, right? So it cooks on the other side. That's what this word is used to refer to figuratively or literally. But figuratively, it is, is then used to describe this idea of perversion, to pervert something is you are making it morally upside down. That's the concept. Jeremiah will use this word in, Jer in one of his sermons, Jeremiah 23, verse 36. In fact, let me just briefly read that. Uh, we can't always chase down every passage for sake of time, but uh, as much as we can, it is very you know, helpful for us. But in Proverbs 23, verse 26, he says, How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they, they, uh, they are prophets of deceit of their heart. And the idea is again, well, I'm sorry, that's verse or 26. I meant verse 36. Uh, he says, The burden of the Lord shall you mention no more, for every man's word shall be his burden, for you have perverted the words of the living God. In other words, he's talking about the false prophets. He's talking to the false prophets. But they're prophesying falsely, to the, and the result is they have perverted the words of the living God. They have, Isaiah will put it this way in Isaiah chapter 5, they call good evil and evil good. Right? Can we think of examples in that, of that in the modern day? <laughs> Things that God condemns that are praised and upheld and promoted by our culture? Absolutely. That's perversion. That's flipping it over. It's reversing the way God intended it to be. 
And so these people, the wicked man is one who in their speech and what they praise and what they promote or what they talk about. These are people that speak contrary to true biblical God-ordained morality, wisdom, sense, logic, the truth. They defy that. And so the first description of this evil man is that they, they are perverse in their speech. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they use, you know, I mean, it can include, right, the idea of, of uh, cussing or, you know, uncouth speech, four-letter words, what have you. But it's more than that. It's the idea of even promoting something, even through, you know, good rhetoric, but they're promoting something that is evil. They're pushing an immoral agenda. These are the men, as one commentary put it, these are the men, is simply rephrasing uh, verse 13, these are the men who leave or abandon, they forsake the well-lighted streets of uprightness. Right? That's what he says, verse 13. They leave, they forsake the paths of uprightness. Why? To walk in the ways of darkness, or as this commentary put it, to slink in the dark alleys of crime and crookedness. These are the people that are... They're, they're perverse not only in their speech, but also in their actions. That's the idea. And they, when they sin, it's not in ignorance. This, this, the wicked man is one who is actively choosing wrong. Well, we've talked about this before, right? But the, the people in the book of Proverbs, you have the wise man, you have the fool. You have the simpleton or the naive person who is kind of at the crossroads of life. They really have not yet committed to one course or the other. But the wise man is the one who is committed to, to the path of wisdom. Not that they're going to be perfect, right? It'll even say, a wise man may fall seven times, but what happens? He gets back up and he keeps going in the way of wisdom. The fool, however, is the one who has chosen Lady Folly. They have actively chosen evil. And then you have the fool on steroids, right? Which is the scorner or the wicked man, right? That's the idea is the wicked man is just another synonym for the, the fool and the scorner. Those who are actively opposing righteousness and they have chosen folly. In fact, it says, it goes on to describe that these wicked men rejoice to do this evil, right? It says in verse 13 that they leave the paths of uprightness, walk in the ways of darkness. But verse 14, it says they rejoice to do evil and delight in the frowardness of the wicked. Again, these are pretty strong words. The word rejoice is a strong word that's used in a variety of contexts. But 1 Kings chapter 1, for instance, it's used of Adonijah. Remember this? He throws a political parade and, and the people rejoice. They, they chant for Ad, Adonijah to be the next king. And it's that whole account where, you know, he's trying to steal the throne from his younger brother Solomon. You remember this? And then David has to come out and name Solomon as his heir. And it's kind of a cool, you know, story. Lots of court intrigue going on in those first couple of chapters of 1 Kings. But that political parade that Adonijah throws in his honor and the people chanting their support for Adonijah to be the next king, that's the word that's used here. We see a similar uh, con context where they're chanting for the next king. With, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 11. But this word is also used in 1 Kings 4 to describe the settled peace of prosperity. Wherever man sits under his vine and under his fig tree, he's enjoying the blessing of the Solomonic kingdom. That's 1 Kings chapter 4. It's Solomon's, it's kind of a, a summary phrase on Solomon's uh, reign, his kingship, is that his kingdom is, is settled and they, the kingdom is rejoicing. The concept is they're, they're enjoying the peace and prosperity that Solomon has brought. 
Or, for instance, this is 1 Kings chapter 8. This is where right after Solomon builds the, uh, the temple, remember this? And then the, the presence of God in the form of a cloud comes in, fills the temple, and they are rejoicing over the work that's been accomplished, God's acceptance of the temple, God filling the temple, and that spirit of, or as I call it here, the glow of exalted worship. That's what this word is used for. But here, these wicked men rejoice. They experience this, again, they, they chant for, they promote, they exalt in, they worship, if you will, evil. That's what it's saying here in verse uh, 14. They rejoice to do evil and they delight in the frowardness of the wicked. And again, the word froward is the same concept, perverse, that they actually love perversity. They, they revel in it. They wallow in it. And they, they love those who participate in it. In other words, these wicked men that are being here described are men who do the wrong things, say the wrong things. Why? All because they love the wrong things. And so the author is trying to, again, Solomon, trying to speak to his son. He's pointing that out. He says, you need to let wisdom into your heart. You need to learn to love righteousness and and thereby walk in the ways of uprightness. And so that's his big theme is that wisdom keeps us from those kind of people by teaching us to love the right things. But what's interesting is he's not done, right? He's saying, okay, this wisdom will keep you from the wicked man, but it'll also keep you from the strange woman. Verse 12 to 15 gave uh, four poetic lines in the Hebrew text to describe the wicked or evil man. Well, in perfect balance, four poetic lines are also given to describe the strange or evil woman. Verses 16 to 19 says this. Let's read it. He says, to deliver you. So notice how it parallels. Verse 12, to deliver you from the way of the evil man. Verse 16, to deliver you from the strange woman, even from the stranger which flatters with her words which forsakes the guide of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house inclines unto death and her paths unto the dead. None that go unto her return again, neither take they hold of the paths of life. Let's explore briefly. We're going to introduce this character that's going to be a major character in chapter 5 and chapter 7. Well, it appears throughout the book, but, you know, chapter 6, and I mean, it's all over. But 5 and 7 are two chapters that nearly the entire chapters are given over to, to the discussion of the strange woman. Now, the root, Hebrew root, behind the word strange refers to being a stranger or an alien or a foreigner to Israel. It's, it's most uh, literally the word refers to people who are ethnically foreign to Israel. It's used in this way in Isaiah 1, Hosea 7, Hosea 8, and many other places. But the word is often also used in a figurative sort of way to describe something that is morally estranged or foreign from God or his covenant people. We see it used this way, particularly in poetic passages like Psalm 58, Psalm 78. And so the idea is it's referring to, again, someone who is maybe ethnically foreign, but morally, for sure, foreign from God and his covenant people. What God is, is heralding forth as what is true righteousness, etc. So when applied to a woman, the strange woman, as appears many times in the book of Proverbs, it means it's referring to an adulteress or a sacred prostitute, whether Israeli or Gentile. In other words, recall that we'll, we'll see this many times throughout the scripture. Oh yeah, you got a thought? 
Exactly. Excellent. All right. So uh, let me build on that. Uh, Peter's absolutely right. Is the word strange woman, again, is, is primarily, again, the word strange primarily is used to refer to someone ethnically not Israeli. But it's also used because typically one that was ethnically not Israeli was a devotee to a false god. And so the idea is, is it, it then could be applied to even a Hebrew person that was worshiping a false god. Does that make sense? Now, this concept plays out multiple times throughout Israeli history. In fact, in the book of Exodus, we'll get there uh, in our Exodus study on Wednesday nights, but several times in the book of Exodus, God forewarns them to not intermingle, to intermarry with the Canaanite tribes that are in the land of Israel. Why? He says explicitly, because they worship false gods. And if you become, again, if you intermarry with them, he says, then what's going to happen is you're going to begin to worship those gods. We totally get that. How many times do we see that in our society today? Someone, because they want to get married to so-and-so, they just decide to swap religions, right? To go along to get along. That idea happens all the time. The Bible warns us as believers to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why? Because of this very reality that when we, what we just talked about, right? The idea of when your affections are tied to something or someone, then your actions follow suit. Ironically, Solomon, the very author of the book of Proverbs, is going to become one of the greatest illustrations of failing in this very area. God commanded, recall this, in Deuteronomy 17, he commanded to not increase wives as king, particularly foreign wives. Well, Solomon does that. What happens? 1 Kings chapter 11 records. In fact, let me just read this because it's so potent. All right, let's go put our eyes on it real quick. 1 Kings chapter 11 first couple of verses of the chapter, right after describing all the glory of the Solomonic kingdom, all the, the wealth and the blessing of God and the wisdom of Solomon, and I mean, all the good stuff that was going on, which again, you can, uh, not, not to get lost in this, but the Bible describes, uh, it tells us that Solomon reigned for 40 years. And the first half of that was very good in, in the sense of he was a godly king, he was making right choices. But then the latter half of that his midlife crisis, if you will, is recorded here in 1 Kings chapter 11. And it says, But King Solomon, first verse, But King Solomon loved many strange women. Right? That's, it's the word that literally means foreign wives. Wives that, again, continuing, not that ethnicity is the primary thing, it's the religious uh, factor. So keep reading. He says, But Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites, the, the uh, Sidonians, that's the, uh, the Phoenicians, they also go by that term, the, the town of Sidon, Tyre and Sidon. And then the Hittites, verse uh, two, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, and here's what Peter was pointing out, you shall not go in unto them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. That command appears in Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 7. You know, later it's rehearsed many other places, but those are kind of your two of your key texts. He says, because they will surely turn away your heart after their gods. But what happens? 
End of verse 2. Solomon clave unto these in love. So what happens next? Well, it reports he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect. And the idea is uh, a whole heart, singularly, singularly devoted. James in the New Testament will use this same sort of idea when he talks about the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And the idea is that you have divided loyalties. So to, to not be perfect with the Lord your God means that you are not singularly devoted to Yahweh and him alone. Rather, it says, verse 5, Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem. Now, uh, in fact, when we were there, it's one of the great ironies of, of you know, biblical history and geography. When we were in Israel, they point this out. There's this little platform that's right on the, it's the segment of land, little tongue of land that was the, the ancient city of David. But then when David passes the, the, you know, the throne to Solomon, Solomon then expands the city of Jerusalem north to what is currently the Temple Mount. That's where he builds the temple to the Lord. But just due east of the Temple Mount is the Mount of Olives. There's a knob of the hill just south of the, the Mount of Olives, which is geographically just a tad higher. Not much, but it's just a tad higher than the Temple Mount. And that is known to this day as the Hill of Abomination. And why? Because that's the hill where Sol that's what this is, passage is talking about. That's the hill that Solomon built all these high places. Verse 7, he built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem. It's talking about the hill of abomination. It's the knob of the hill just south of the Mount of Olives. It's kind of, the Mount of Olives kind of has you know, a couple of ripples to it. And you have the, the Mount of Olives proper. Then you have just south is the hill of abomination. Just north is Nob. Right? That's where, remember, the tabernacle was set up and when Saul slayed all the priests at, at Nob or Nob. I always remember it because Nob is how you say it in Hebrew, but it's the Nob of the hill just north. <laughs> Anyways, it's N-O-B. But you're welcome. You'll remember it now, won't you? But the point is, that's what verse 7 is talking about, is that this, that's the, the, the hill just south of Mount Olivet. And this is where he set up all the shrines to the false gods. And it says he did this, verse 8, Likewise did he for all his strange wives, the foreign wives that brought their foreign religions into Israel. He did this for every single one of them. And it says, And he burned incense and sacrificed unto their gods. And this is why God said, don't do that. Now, what's interesting is, again, just to take that another whole layer, is many, 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 in fact, most of these false religions, whether you're talking, you know, Molech, especially Astarte or Ashtoreth that we just read in, in 1 Kings 11, and many of these pagan uh, religions, one of the primary ways you worshipped that god or goddess was through sacred sex. So the temples had sacred prostitutes. And that's how you worship those gods, which is a pretty good recruitment program 
for young men, right? The book of Numbers talks about this. Do you remember when the, the children of Israel were in the wilderness and the king of Moab is freaking out because the nation of Israel is huge. They have 600,000 fighting man army. And the Moabites are like, whoa, there is no way that we can fight these guys. We can't resist these guys. So what does the king of Moab decide to do? Well, he says he's going to hire the spiritual hitman, remember this, Balaam, to try and curse the nation of, of Israel. Well, it, it, you know, Balaam gives it his best three, three different times. He tries to curse the nation of Israel. It doesn't work. Every time he tries to curse, it comes out as a blessing. And he's like, man, I'm sorry, but this is, you know, this is what Yahweh is making me do. Well, if you know the end of that story, Balaam, who is unable to curse Israel, nonetheless does give the king of Moab a strategy to conquer Israel. He says, all you have to do is get Israel to convert to your religion. How do you do that? He says, you get all your pretty young ladies on the border and they mingle with the Israelite young men. He says, and before you know it, they're gonna be worshiping your gods. Well, that's Numbers chapter 25. Does it work? Yeah, it works. The Moabites set up their religion, right? And they allure all the young men of Israel and what happens is God says, whoa, 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 this isn't happening. In fact, <laughs> I'm digressing just a little bit, but it serves the point. Um, in that story, I encourage you, if you're, not, if you're rusty on it, go read it. Numbers chapter 25. Because Moses and Aaron lead the nation in a prayer of repentance. They say, God, forgive us. We cannot do this. You just commanded us not to do that. That was Exodus chapter 34, right? He's like, and this is what we're doing. So he, Moses, Aaron, the elders of Israel, go before the tabernacle of God and they, they, they throw a prayer meeting. They're asking God to stay his hand of judgment because this, you know, the nation is, is going off the deep end and they're, they're going away from God and they're worshiping the gods of Moab. While they're praying, do you remember this? There is one of the Israeli men walks by the prayer meeting having in tow a Moabite woman. And he goes to his tent. And this, this holy, righteous zeal overcomes, remember his name? It's one of the sons of Aaron, was it? Phineas. Phineas, the son of Aaron. Which, by the way, well, let me finish the story. What happens? Well, Phineas takes a spear and he runs in to the tent where these two went. And in one thrust, he kills them both. And God stays his hand because of the righteous zeal and you know, the, the willingness of, of Phineas to enforce biblical law. Then God stays his hand and the plague stops and, and that saves the nation. But then Phineas, from there forward, God gives a prophecy and Phineas, by that act of holy zeal, is actually the guy who is exalted to be the next high priest after Aaron. Remember that? Isn't it great? Great story. Go read that one to your children this evening for bedtime, okay? But the point is, that is the adulteress or strange woman. Because now, again, the word strange woman in the book of Proverbs can mean any of those things. It could be an actual cult prostitute because that happened, right? It was all over the place, all over the place. Josiah, later when he cleanses the land, he's tearing down temples and he's getting rid of all the sacred prostitutes. And I mean, it's, it's, and he's praised for that in, uh, in, in the book of 2 Kings. But it can also refer to even an Israeli woman 
who, again, going back, because notice again, go back to Proverbs 2, and notice how she's described in Proverbs chapter 2, how it describes this immoral woman in three ways. She flatters with her lips, verse 16. She forsakes her companion, verse 17, first part. She forsakes the guide of her youth. There's a debate on that. What is the guide of her youth? Well, it might be her father, right? There's, there's depending on, on how you translate that, some will argue that it's the father uh, of this young woman, or some will say that it was, she's, uh, you know, because when we get to chapter seven, the adulteress is actually a married woman. And so it might be her husband. In other words, the husband of her youth. It could be either way. But it describes the immoral woman as flattering with her lips, forsaking her companion, and number three, forgetting the covenant of her God. So that last description in verse 17, to forget the covenant of her God, again, implies that she's Israeli, right? That she's actually forsaking Yahweh. And so the idea is, again, the word strange woman can mean any of those. It's kind of a category, if you will. Of an, that's why I, I try to describe it. Uh, as an adulteress, that could, that could be a married woman stepping out on her marriage, or it could be a sacred prostitute, whether Israeli or Gentile. That's the point, because the word strange can mean foreign in an ethnic sense or in a religious sense, right? Either way. So the point is, this, this description is what, and again, he only gives a couple verses here. He's going to give a couple chapters to it later. So we'll be back to this for sure, verse five, or chapter 5, chapter 7. But notice in verse 18 and 19 how Solomon just gets, he cuts to the chase and he says, this is where it leads. Her house inclines unto death and her paths unto the dead. None that go uh, unto her return again, neither take they hold of the paths of life. Now there's, there's, again, the whole point is he's trying to describe the results of the immoral woman. Indulging in illicit sexual activity outside the bounds of sacred marriage leads to death whether physically, spiritually, or judicially. Because many of the comments made in the book of Proverbs, don't forget, we'll, we'll touch upon this even a little bit more in a moment, but many of the comments that are made in the book of Proverbs, it's, it's Solomon beneath the Israeli uh, you know, theocracy, where it is against divine law to commit adultery. Right? We can do it in modern American society and you're not going to be executed unless the jealous husband gets to you first, right? That's possible. But, but our law system doesn't make that a, a, you know, a capital crime. It was a capital crime in ancient Israel. So the point is, we have to recognize that, kind of put it back in its context, that when Solomon says, this leads to death, he might be referring to an actual, you know, I mean, we often would say, well, a spiritual death. Sure, absolutely. But I think it's more than that could be a ju- judicially sentenced to a physical death as well. Not to mention, you know, all the STDs and all that stuff that would be, you know, going around. And we'll, we'll save that conversation for another day. But the reality is Proverbs will over and over and over talk about this. But let me draw your attention back to this idea of flattery real quick, because this is going to be a big theme that comes up in the book of Proverbs. And I just want to introduce you to it here because it, it's, uh, we can save time later. But the idea of flattery, the word flattery is describing the speech, which again, do you notice this? The speech of the wicked man was described in verse 12, and now the speech of the wicked woman is described. And there, again, it's out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus taught us, did he not? But the the wicked woman's speech is characterized as flattery. 
Uh, in other words, and, and there's obviously overlap here, but I think it's interesting that stereotypically, your male speech is just described as perverse. Right? He's just overtly perverse. But your female wicked woman speech is more subtle. And it uses the word flattery. The Hebrew word that's translated flattery literally means to be smooth, slippery, or oily. It shows up in a number of different contexts. Jacob, for instance, remember Jacob and Esau? Esau is hairy, but Jacob has smooth skin. That's the same word that's used. David's sling stone, when he picks it up out of the, the river and he gets ready to go fight Goliath, it's a smooth stone. Psalm 73 will describe how uh, we can step onto slippery places. Right? The idea is slippery, there's the word. Uh, again, oil is, is described, slippery oil, same word used in Proverbs chapter 5. So the point is that at its core, the word means smooth, slippery, or oily. And what it's referring to is flattery is speech that is spoken with a double heart or false motives. It means that you, you say one thing, but you mean another. You bend the truth or you even promote falsehood, but you're trying to hide it. You're veiling it. We have, again, we, we won't go there for sake of time, but we have these other contexts, Isaiah 30, Ezekiel 12, and this is talking about false prophets. Again, the idea is they're, they're subtle in their speech. They are proclaiming the word of the Lord, right? Or they say they are. And so they, they, they lure you in with this supposed authority that they have to speak, but they're actually lying to you. And so they're deceiving you with their speech. They lure you in because you're like, man, that, that sounds so good. That sounds so true, right? And then before you know it, you realize you're being lied to. Well, that's the, the, the way he, he characterizes the speech of the wicked woman. Because the goal of flattery is to boost someone's ego with a false sense of security and or worth. Right? Oh, you're so awesome. Oh, you're just making me so happy. Right? It's like, see it for what it is, right? Look right through it. They're after your wallet, nothing else, <laughs> right? And the idea is just see through the speech, right? That's what he's saying. True wisdom sees through this sort of flattery. Daniel chapter 11, verse 32 uses the same word. It's actually there, it's used in a political context. Can, pol can politicians use smooth, slippery speech where they say one thing, but they really mean something else? And they lure you in and make promises and, you know, stroke your ego or try and pad your security and make you feel good. And then all the time, they're actually lying to you. Yeah, it happens all the time, right? But the idea is that's what flattery is. And so one of the, the big points of the book of Proverbs is he's going he's gonna to revisit this theme several times, which is why I'm introducing it here. Because, again, we'll build on it more later. But the son is trying to, or the father is trying to teach the son, help the son to learn don't believe everything you hear, right? Learn to, because to, that's what wisdom is. Wisdom helps you discern truth, even when someone is, sounds good. It could be a wicked man or a wicked woman who are there spinning their story, but ultimately it's flattery. It's false speech. It's speech with, a, with false motives, a double heart. So he's warning him. Well, what happens next? Well, let's, let's finish out the chapter and then with this, we'll, we'll wrap it up for today. But he's verse 20 to 22 then. He, again, the whole idea of wisdom is that it guards us from the wicked man and the strange woman, but it also places us with good men. The so, 
that is at the, at the beginning, that so that you may walk in the ways of good men, verse 20. He's describing the result. He's describing this is what will happen if you heed the admonition to attain wisdom, right? He just gave us that admonition, first half of the chapter. He's told us that we need, if we have wisdom, it'll help us to avoid, it'll preserve us, or guard us, help us to avoid the evil men and women that are in our lives and their destructive ways, the ways that lead to destruction. So here's the result. He says, again, verse 20 to 21, or 22, he says, that or so that you may walk in the way of good men and keep the paths of the righteous. For the upright shall dwell in the land and, their per- and uh, the perfect shall remain in it. But the wicked shall be cut off from the earth and the transgressors shall be rooted out of it. What Solomon does here is he basically reminds his son Rehoboam, which is important. Again, I'm going to try and explain this for the next few minutes and then we'll be done. But this is important on both a personal level as well as a national level. Because remember, Solomon is king, and he's training his son Rehoboam to be the next king. That's the whole point of the book of Proverbs, it, right? It's, it's, a, it's a tutorship material to be the next king of Israel. And so these truths of the upright and the blameless living long in the land versus the wicked being removed from the land... These truths take us back to God's covenant with Israel, as Peter pointed out earlier. This is, this is the book of Deuteronomy sort of stuff. And we'll see this multiple times in the book of Proverbs because he's reminding that this is true. And this is still true of us in a, you know, in a, in a personal, practical sense. But I want you to try and understand it as well in the sense of how Solomon is trying to teach Rehoboam. Because Rehoboam is going to be the next king. If you're rusty, go back and read Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28 sometime. It's the listing of the blessings and the curses of the covenant. That he says, if you are obedient to God's ways, he says, then this, these are the blessings that the nation will experience. And remember, not that it's the only one, but who is the primary person that influences ancient Israeli society? It's the king. Right? If you have a good king, the nation is going to be blessed. If you have a wicked king, the nation is going to, just, I mean, they're going to writhe in judgment. It's going to get rough. Well, this is exactly what Rehoboam needs to learn. This is what Solomon is trying to teach. And this is, again, the irony, because Solomon himself is the wise king that writes the book of Proverbs to later in his life violate so many of these very principles and open the door to idolatry in the nation of Israel, which leads to exile, being rooted out of the land. The nation crumbles and falls, and they're sent to exile. Yeah. It's like the example where you say, do as I say and not as I do. It doesn't work. Yeah, it's so true. Okay, did y'all catch that? Someone made a great point. It's the whole idea of, you know, that, that old adage, right? Do what I say, but not what I do. That doesn't really work. Many things, most things, are better caught, not taught, as they say, right? That's not a biblical proverb, but, you know, those words aren't necessarily, but the concept is there because the Bible makes that, you know, affirms that over and over again. We talked about a few weeks back in Proverbs 1 where we talked about the relationship of a father and a son, right? And I think out of all the, the parenting proverbs that we see throughout the book of Proverbs and the rest of Scripture, my favorite is Proverbs chapter 23 where it describes the father says to his son, says, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. 
That's a one-verse summary on good parenting. He says, son, give me your heart. In other words, there needs to be a relational connection between the father and the child. But then there needs to be, he says, let your eyes observe my ways. In other words, I want you to be able to, to mimic me. Let me show you how to do it. Let me model in front of you a godly life. And if you, as Simone pointed out, are simply saying, well, do what I say, but not what I do. What are children actually going to do? Yeah, most of the time, they're going to do what you do. Not what you say, what you do. Or they'll see through it, right, in your hypocrisy. And they'll go the other way. Happens all the time. And, again, as Simone just pointed out, this is exactly what happened in the case of Solomon and Rehoboam. Is Solomon had a lot of good lectures here. And he lived it well for the first half of his reign. And then he goes off the deep end. And as a result... Which one did Rehoboam follow? <laughs> right When you read the, the, the reign of Rehoboam in the next chapter, right that's 1 Kings 12, it looks a whole lot more like 1 Kings 11 than it looks like 1 Kings 1 to 10. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you got a hand up? Yeah. I was just going to say, my understanding is when I first read, they're Yeah. Oh, that's absolutely true. And none of, I mean, we're all vulnerable to this. None of us are immune to it. Again, my, I mean, scares me to death, but I mean, my, my mentor, Chuck Crabtree, again, he's in his 80s. And he's, a, he's, he's had decades of faithfulness. But he talks about this all the time. He's scared to death of making a mistake that just blows the rest of his because again, not just the rest of his useful years, but it casts a shadow on all the years prior. I mean, because and, and Solomon, again, he knows, but in the book of Ecclesiastes, which, I mean, people will debate, but I'm, I'm convinced Solomon does write the book of Ecclesiastes. If that's the case, then it tells us that Solomon goes off the deep end, but he ends up coming back to God. And he writes the book of Ecclesiastes late in his life. He describes his old age in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. But what's interesting is he makes a comment in there and he says that just one fly will spoil the ointment. So a little fool, a little folly, will destroy, destroy good character. Right? And it's like, wow. Hmm. Ouch. You know? Because it's like, I mean, and it's true, right? I mean, you ever had that happen where, you know, a fly goes into your perfume bottle or my, you know, my water bottle or something. This, whoop, and this fly goes in. It's like, oh, I'm not drinking it now. Right? <laughs> the whole thing, we throw it out. Right? And, but he's using that analogy. And because when you think about it, when, and, and I mean, and by God's grace, you know, he can work to, to make us more useful than we deserve. But when we start thinking of people and reflecting on their lives, when we think of David, for instance, right? Most of us are going to think, yeah, he's a great man. But what's the thing that typically stands out? Yeah, Bathsheba and murdering Uriah. Right? Man, he's a great guy. Well, except for that and that. Right? And, and, but it's, it's the truth. It's like, so what sticks in our, our memory? And that was Solomon's point, right, in the book of Ecclesiastes, is that we are often remembered more for our failures than our successes. It's often the case. And so he's, he's saying, and he's trying to teach this to his son. He's saying, 
there is a blessing and long life, not just for you, but the nation, if you walk in God's ways. But if you don't, he says, then you'll be removed in judgment. You'll be rooted out of the land, which is individually true when someone you know, is executed for a capital crime, for sure. But it's also true on the national level, even more importantly on the national level, as the king leads the nation. And that's, of course, what Solomon's you know, big burden is for, for Rehoboam to catch. All right, so next time, we'll pick it up in chapter 3 and keep rolling through. Um, but I, I, I trust that, again, the book of Proverbs is, is being helpful to you, and I encourage you, just read it consistently, even you know, while we're teaching through it, etc. Just immerse yourself in the book. Uh, you'll, you'll get out of it what you put into it. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the book of Proverbs. We thank you for this lecture on the prophets of wisdom, the value, the benefits, the blessings of wisdom, and how it guards us from the path of evil men and evil women. We ask that you would help us, Lord, to learn this, that you would help us to live it, to fortify our lives, Lord, for your glory, by your grace that, Lord, you would help us to, to walk in the paths of wisdom, to learn not only from the words of Solomon, but also the life, the choices of Solomon, and many of the mistakes that he made, which led then to his own uh, regret and, and that he describes later in life. Lord, we ask that you would help us to heed his advice, both in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and elsewhere, that, Lord, you would help us to walk in the way of wisdom, to follow after Lady Wisdom, to avoid Lady folly. All that, Lord, you might bless, that we might live long in the land, as it says, and not be rooted out of it. May we not have our lives of usefulness and faithfulness cut short by a little folly. Lord, help us to be faithful to you. And, and Lord, yet we can't do that without your grace. So God, work in and through us, we pray. Help us, Lord, as we'll see even in the morning service in the book of Ephesians, that you would work profoundly in us to help us respond appropriately to your goodness and your grace that we find in the gospel, that you would equip us to live the lives of wisdom that we're here learning in the book of Proverbs. So we commit ourselves to you and ask your blessing, Lord, on the remainder of our service today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.